guys, welcome to another episode of In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. I had the opportunity to interview again Sanford Shapiro. I think it's the first time I have a second guest on the show. Sanford is he's a learning disability specialist and we had a long conversation about ADD, ADHD. Um, it's greatly misunderstood, overdiagnosed, there's underdiagnosed, and it's actually quite complex, but we like to use the term and throw it around a lot. And so I was able to kind of ask Sanford about all of that and to help give us some, some understanding and some framework to understand it and work with it. Uh, so just a little more about Sanford, he's had an extensive career as a teacher trainer, a school director, and a special needs consultant. He was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, but has lived abroad in Australia, as well as the West Coast and mountain ranges of the Northwestern U.S., and he's currently living in Cuenca, Ecuador with his wife. He's also the author of two children's books. Uh, one is called A Light Within, and then he just released another one called A Light Within My Dyslexia. I love talking to Sanford. I think you'll get a lot out of this episode. Thank you for joining. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the podcast. Okay, Sanford Shapiro, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. Are you going by Andrew these days or Andy? How do people... Uh, Andrew. I yeah, yeah. I, I I guess I haven't been Andy since high school. So, but yeah. uh, Drew or Rue, Rue is my old River God name. Uh, uh-huh. Whatever Andrew works or Andres from since you're calling from Ecuador, I'll answer to that too. Alejandro. <laughs> so Sanford, ADD and ADHD. Let's start with the basics. What is ADD and what is ADHD and what is the difference? I think that's one of the things that confuses people a lot um, and myself, and I'd like to understand yeah. better. Well, it, it relates to the, the, the three main types of ADD or ADHD, which is, you know, ADD people use that term most often when they're talking about attention deficit without the hyperactivity. And ADHD is attention deficit with hyperactivity. So that's the simplest way of looking at it. And it, yeah, it's, it, it can be a little crazy making because, you know, which term do I use and, you know, what I do, um, you know, based on my understanding and experiences, even when I write the word, you know, I write ADHD, but I put a slash between the A, the D and the H, you know, really to signify that it could be with hyperactivity or impulsiveness, or it could be, um, the ADD, the attention deficit, which is more inattentive, but without the impulsive hyperactivity. Okay. So, so that's, that's, what, that's what the difference in the terms. That's helpful. Good. When, in my experience, whenever people talk about ADHD, um, they're talking about school. And you know, I've talked to hundreds of families that are like, he's ADD, struggling in school or, you know, friends and family that are like, you know, um, he or she is really struggling in school, but it goes way beyond school. Right. And so I, I think that, you know, as we get our conversation going, 
I'd love to understand what it is in its entirety. Um, in the context of school, I think is where it really starts to come out. But what are the behaviors and patterns that surround this diagnosis or uh, disorder? Sure. You know, I, I think, you know, I think prior to getting into, you know, what might be behaviors, because that can be such a mix of individual traits, depending upon other factors, but just to really get to the meat and the heart of what I think you're asking and what we've spoken about before is, you know, how does the condition of attention deficit disorder with or without hyperactivity, how does it impact life? Um, yes. even, and, and even though for kids, their school day is, you know, arguably the, the biggest part of their day, um, except, you know, these days, of course, but it impacts the rest of, of their lives as children and as adults. You know, they're getting into teen drivers that are diagnosed with ADHD are much more likely to be in not only traffic accidents, but serious traffic accidents that result in significant injury and or death. Um, you know, there's, there's studies that indicate that about, you know, close to 30% of teenagers with addiction and substance abuse disorders also have ADHD and the, the pipeline to uh, prison incarceration is significant. The amount of people children and adults with attention deficit disorder, with or without hyperactivity, you know, and, and their, um, how much more prevalent it is for those folks um, to have an eating disorder, to have depression, to have uh, childhood trauma, you know, is, is very, very significant. The statistics are, are frightening and you know, we can tap into some more of those as we go on. I don't want to get too lost in that. But, you know, again, for example, people with, with ADHD are four times more likely to develop depression. Wow. And yet, people are really asking with the best of intention and the most seriousness are asking the questions that, that you ask, and, and which is, is it even is it real and or is it overdiagnosed? I mean, I think that's one of the things that's on a lot of people's minds, particularly in the, in the treatment world or personal growth world is um, there's a feeling and a perception and a set of opinions that it may be a condition that's overdiagnosed. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's at the heart of most of the conversations I have with people. You know, and there's this, there's this common narrative going around and that's just like, you know, it's super overdiagnosed, especially with young males. They're just normal. They're just being what they are. Um, and, and so I definitely want to dive into that. Bef before we go on, how would you describe ADD to just a working definition or list of this, right. that, and the other? So let's use one term. We'll use ADHD to refer to all kinds of attention deficit. And so I've just talked about, you know, I've laid out some statistics that really presented as a very serious condition that increases risk for all sorts of life problems and significant problems and death and injury. But 
let's confuse the audience for a second here and say, like any condition, like any human trait, sexuality, intelligence, um, height and eye color, it's a set of normal traits um, that people have. It's just that for some people, these traits occur in, in, in different levels of intensity. You know, for example, when I say it's part of the normal human traits, let me get clear on that because that's a little vague. But, you know, we all have varying degrees of our ability to pay attention or degrees of distractibility. We, we all have varying degrees of being able to not only pay attention, but to persist in our attention or our ability to sustain attention. We all have the uh, ability to one degree or another to divide our attention or to do more than one thing at once. We, we all human beings, kids and adults, have varying degrees of being able to engage in inhibition, meaning to stop doing something even though you might have the impulse or the thought to do it. That's inhibition. And we all have executive functions. So all of those things are all human traits. They're all correlated. They're all necessary. Um, again, just like height and eye color. But when you have difficulty in some of those areas, or all of those areas, or one of those areas, when that degree of difficulty or struggle starts to really lead to harm or, or impairment in important life activities, of course, if, it, if those difficulties lead to increased risk for self-harm, injury, or death, then of course that's when we consider it a disorder. But at its root, we're talking about traits that we all have. Again, it's just that if we struggle in those areas to such a degree that the environment starts to create adverse consequences or kicks our butt, right? We start to lose jobs, people have relationship problems, right? So it's, it's, it's when those things start to bump up against the environment and society. So with that, you know, when it becomes significant impairment where it's really noticeable in those ways that I mentioned, there are really, you know, three types um, that experts talk about, three types of ADHD. Number one, which is where it often begins in children and young children, um, is the impulsive and hyperactive type. And then the second type is, is inattentive and distractible, but without the hyperactivity. And it's not uncommon for young children who start out being impulsive and hyperactive to, as they age, to start to look more like the inattentive and they tend to lose their hyperactivity. And then, you know, as people age, really the most common type is the third type, which is combined, that sometimes they're impulsive and hyperactive and sometimes the behaviors look more like inattention and distractibility. And I'll say one more thing, which is, even though I've normalized it a little bit, you know, I'm going to go back and forth, but it's a serious, it can be a serious disorder. And the most common cause, you know, is that it runs in families through genetics. And estimates are something along the lines of 75 to 80 percent, you know, of, of, 
of folks, of children and adults with um, significant ADHD, whatever the type, we can find genetic uh, history, 75 to 80% of them, which is about the same thing of the genetic contribution to height. Okay, wow. I've heard it described that ADHD isn't a lot, an inability to focus. I've heard it described by people who have it as a hyper focus on things that are distracting. Um, is that fair? Is that accurate in your experience? Well, that's certainly, you know, their experience. The best way that, that I tend to understand it is that it's, it, it, and they're right, it's, it's primarily it's not a, a problem. It's not a deficiency in paying attention. It's a deficiency in being able to modulate your attention or to moderate it, to, to always to often be in sort of charge of your attention. But again, you know, we, it, we all have that problem. It, anyone who tries anything close to a contemplative practice, such as mindfulness meditation, learns in a hurry that our ability to stay focused on one thing for more than a few seconds is minimal. So it's a human condition. But when that ability to sort of really be in control of your, of your attention um, and to sustain your attention even in the face of distraction, that becomes the home, that becomes one of the hallmarks of, um, of attention deficit. Yeah, it's funny, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people can relate to that distractibility, right? Focus is uh -huh. difficult, like, you know, and I, I remember the first time that I learned about this, I was in high school, I was just graduated from high school, I was living with a cousin out in Maryland, and he's like, yeah, I've got this, my buddy's got it, they walked me through it, I'm like, I have that too, and they were like, no, you don't, <laughs> right. right, and, and right, like, so I think you make a really valid point, and that is, is that attention is difficult, yes. um, for all of us, but what yeah. you're describing, and I think you've laid it out nicely, is that we're talking about at a level that that you could call it disorderly right right as a disorder right you know what we can say also is that if you were to take a look at the brains of people where the consequences of their inattention or distractibility or the deficits in executive functions which which we'll unpack in a minute um, when those reach you know uh, real consequential levels if we looked at the brains, we would see brain differences. We would see things like reduced baseline dopamine. We would see things um, like, but when they're excited, dopamine levels being much higher than, than the average person. We would see differences in their activity in the frontal lobes and in parts of the midbrain and in parts of the back brain or the hind brain. So, it's not just a social construct, you can see it in the brains as well. You know, I said earlier, and, and you talked about it too, which is if ADHD is not really what we used to think of it, meaning it's not primarily a deficit in paying attention, then what is it? You know, what are those executive functions? And you and I know that people talk about this stuff all the time, 
with still, you know, kind of minimal understanding of what it really is. You know, people can, can make dissertations on what the executive functions are. It's kind of an intellectual experience. And, you know, one of the ways that we can think of what executive functions are and how it relates to attention, the executive functions, besides all the scientific terms we, we think of, is these are ways, these are functions that help us resense ourself. In other words, arguably a healthy, mentally healthy person can, can think about themselves. They can be metacognitive, they can be self-aware, and that changes their behavior, right? And it helps us reach goals our ability to think about our own actions and our own motivations. And in order to do that, we have these executive functions, which are things like our ability to stop what, our do, what we're doing. Like I'm, you know, and, and I'll try to use very concrete terms. A second executive function is our ability to re-image things, you know, to picture things in our mind. And these executive functions develop in all kids and they tend to be like what we call hierarchical and, and developmental, meaning that they start with the ability to stop and then you go on to this ability to picture things in your mind. This happens in young kids. And then it's rehearing or our ability to say things to ourselves right, to have internal dialogue. And, and you know, in the treatment world that people tend to have a lot of self-defeating dialogue, um, but we also learn that you can have positive self-talk. But that's an executive function. And the last two are that you can re-sense yourself by learning to recreate emotions in yourselves to really, like that's what method actors do. They can recreate emotional experiences Right, and we all have that ability, and that gives us the ability to kind of self-regulate our emotions. And then finally, of course, we all know that when you watch little kids, they're playing out in the in the yard or in the park, and you know there's a there's kind of a funny joke that parents learn about and can say, which is, you know, I gave my kid this gift, but he was more interested in playing with the box that it came in. <laughs> You know, because they're what they're really interested in doing is what we call manual play, like testing themselves out in the real world by crawling, jumping, seeing how the box is constructed, taking the thing apart. That's, you know, manual play that eventually develops into, you know, baseball. But it's also problem solving. And so that's an executive function. And some people, so all of these things that we're talking about, stopping, re-imaging, re-hearing, emoting to yourself and, and, in, and having manual play that you can then think about after it's over. You know, those are all the executive functions and they're all based on you know, more specific kinds of skills. But, but those people with, with attention deficit tend to have um, difficulty in some or all of these executive functions. That really kind of helps lay it out. Um, is, is there, you know, it's, it's often said about autism spectrum disorder that if you've seen one, you've seen one. 
um, right. in that it's in that there are different ways it plays out for different individuals. And some yeah, common that, themes you can see. Could you say the same thing about ADHD? Most definitely. Most definitely. The view from thirty thousand feet for a parent, let's say, or 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 a professional is you read about that there's a diagnosis of ADHD. And that means something from 30,000 feet, you know, but it's different when you get closer to the ground at 10,000 feet. And then the point of view of the individual, the term as a tool, as good as it can be, as important as it can be, it can really miss a lot of important things. You know, so the circling back to, is it, overdiagnosed, the, the evidence is clear that it's not overdiagnosed. In fact, it might be underdiagnosed, but that can miss the fact that it's often misdiagnosed. And there's a lot of, I'll use a highly technical term, crappy diagnosis, diagnostic work, because there's so, there's so many, when you ask the question of how does this affect someone, the answer of how ADHD affects an individual life is conditional on all these other things like family of origin, like the rest of their learning profile and their intelligence level or their memory capacity. So it is true that for all these reasons, the term is useful, but if you stop there, you've you've completely missed the kid. And from the kid's point of view, it, the same thing happens. Some kids live in denial and some kids live in over-identification where they use it as a crutch <laughs> instead of really digging into what does this mean for me? What's my working memory like? And that makes sense. I have a friend who's got a son and she said he's super lethargic, you yeah. know, and yet he can read a book for 10 hours straight. And she's like, I don't know that that's necessarily healthy that he reads a book for 10 <laughs> right. hours straight, right? Like every, you know, every parent out there wants their son or daughter to read. And, and so she's trying to piece it together and asking me, you know, how do I make sense of this? This isn't hyperactivity. This is just the opposite. There's massive attention here and he's, he's a very intelligent young boy mm -hmm. and he's not doing well in school. So that, that, that goes along with what you're saying where there's a spectrum of executive function that this is going to impact young people or anyone differently. Yeah. Um, that really helps frame the conversation and, and is really, is really helpful. And I'm glad you mentioned that it's not overdiagnosed mm -hmm. because that's a common myth. And I, I'm guilty of that as well, right? Yeah. Um, of just saying, well, young boys, of course they're hyper in school, you know, like the, the school system's antiquated and it doesn't fit, you know, some mm -hmm. people, which may be true. It is true, yeah. Right? Um, but it's not the, let's not oversimplify this is what right. I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Kind of an interesting yeah. question <laughs> that, that might be a little wacky, but might, I don't know, I'd be interested to know when you evolution, like in the terms of evolution, like looking at modern society a thousand years ago, thousands of years ago, go back to tribal living. 
could this have been something we would have said in a tribal setting like this is very normal and these people serve a really important role does that does that question make sense yeah it makes sense um i can i can go at it from from a few different angles but let's start at at, at a place you you mentioned this before we started um recording you said something about mystery you know, and and I would say that it's true when we try to figure out kids or we try to figure out ADHD, as much as we know, there's a lot that we that's still evolving. You know, the fact that ADHD is is misdiagnosed a lot, you know, uh, is really important. Um, you know, one of the one of the pieces to uh, I'll if I don't get back to the evolutionary part of this question, just rein me back in. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, one of the reasons it's underdiagnosed is because, well, about, you know, at least 30% of, of people with diagnosed with ADHD also have a learning difference or a learning disability. So you've got to really look at what looks like conduct disorder. Or, or their misfits into, as you said, an antiquated educational system. So kids that are really squirmy get into trouble. And if you happen to be a person, a kid of color, you know, black, black boys in particular, their behaviors are so much more often, studies are clear, they're, they're so much more, more frequently judged to be aggressive and criminal type behavior by their white teachers. Right, so they're going to be diagnosed as aggressive criminal conduct disorder. You know, Howard Gardner, who who's a Harvard guy who created this theory of multiple intelligences, you know, talked a lot about this cultural piece, which is in our society, arguably people skills and language skills are the ones that really help you succeed in the world, you know, particularly in school. And if you're tall, white, and male, and you have those things, then you really got a good chance of being successful. But if you're a South Sea Islander, you know, back hundreds of years ago, the ability to read the stars and to read the waves and to have visual spatial capacity that's completely independent of the ability to read, they're the ones who are gonna get the tribe to the best fishing grounds or to find the most habitable island. So yes, it's, it's culturally dependent. And I'm sure that when Cro-Magnon man and Neanderthal man were, were, and women were walking around the, the earth, there were different sets of skills. Um, the ability to pay attention to a few things at once and even be ADHD-like um, much like, you know, we can jokingly refer to dogs' behaviors, you know, same thing. They have the ability to be constantly distracted, and yet when they see a bird, you know, that terrier is honed in, hyper-focused, and that's a really good hunting ability, the ability to scan multiple things at once and then be super, super focused. Mm -hmm. But we don't live in that society anymore. Yeah. So, you know, we can speak out of both sides of our, of ourselves that way. And, 
You know, another thought I had this morning is that to be an adult with ADHD or to have an ADHD brain, it's kind of like the normal condition of being an adolescent, right? In other words, the adolescent brain, as, as you know, we kind of nerds learn is, is they have an undeveloped frontal cortex, which leads to the difficulty in not only paying attention, but paying attention to signals, um, the ability to plan and prioritize and modulate emotions. That's sort of the normal condition of, of being a teenager, of having an adolescent brain. But there's a real upside to that underdeveloped adolescent brain that's, like you said, from an evolutionary point of view, it's growing into an adult brain. But, but part of that growing process is that it, it is the young people and the teenagers who tend to be the most exploratory. They're the ones who challenge the status quo and the, and the same old, same old beliefs. They, they're the ones that tend to create the, the tech startups. They're the ones that, that tend to be demanding and, and demanding in a way that leads to sometimes needed societal change. So it's, you have to live with two truths, which is that it can be this really terribly impactful condition that can lead to trauma, crime, divorce, job loss, and tremendous amounts of shame. And yet also, if treated correctly, be useful even. Yeah. So you speak out of you speak out of both sides of your mouth, but it's it's true there's there's more than one set of truths. And and we tend to live in a society as parents and as professionals where we're always looking to fix it rather than treat it. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good segue into the next part of this conversation and that is how do we channel that energy? how do we find the gifts within it? Because I know a lot of people in my life that are very talented and have been able to find their way through this and use it to their strengths. And you and I have talked about this before, but one friend in particular, he was running a business and, you know, um, creative, high energy, very proactive in a lot of ways, got on his meds, and he was like organized and focused and all these things. And his staff approached him and said, um, we need you to get off your meds now. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm, I'm doing so well. And they're like, no, we need you to be, we need your strengths in other areas. We'll, we'll keep you organized. We'll keep your schedule intact. And, and uh, you know, so I, I think that, you know, that's an adult example, but mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of parents with young kids that are at a loss, even if they've yeah. been diagnosed, even if they've tried meds or are on meds, I'm seeing parents still going, this is a mystery. And so, right. you know, I, generally, what would you say to those parents listening right now that are like, hey, I'm, I'm one of those people, I'm a little bit lost, my son's right. strong in areas, weak in others, and yeah. self-esteem yeah. is, is, I think, the key thing that we see like their self-esteem is tanking, whatever that may look like. How do we channel it? How do we help them? Yeah, I, well, I think one thing is 
we don't run from either, you know, we don't run, we don't choose sides, you know, one side being, it's a gift. The other side, it's a devastating problem. Right? We don't need to choose too quickly. Um, and that means as parents, slowing down enough to like anything that, sh that we see as struggles for our kids, slowing down enough to really, really get more curious about what it's like to live in their shoes. Uh, going back to your friend, I, I, I have a friend named Tom who, he's a super talented photographer. He took some of the iconic album cover photographs, you know, of rock and roll heroes in the 60s, 70s, and, you know, including Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I mean, this guy is amazing. And if you watched him, I watched him once take a bunch of photographs um, at, a, at a fundraising dinner we were both at. And, you know, he, he was barely even looking at the camera. He's so talented. It was just click, 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 click. He's, you know, I knew him because I was running a school for kids with dyslexia, many of whom had ADHD. And he was, Tom, very dyslexic and ADHD and so creative. And he started trying his son's Ritalin, I think it was. And, um, and the way his wife described it was, you know, when Tom's on his medication, he can remember why he went to the garage what he was there to get. But the idea of him taking those meds while he's out on a photo shoot was not a good idea. So it's the same thing of with medication is being mindful of when and why you want to take it. So I, I have this kind of list of things that, you know, I call them tips towards awesome, which is how do we wade through the focus on the problem to treating it in a way that produces some results. And I can go through, through a few of them with you. I think that's part of what you're asking. And, and number, number one is get real with your kid or whether you're the parent or the professional. You know, when I say get real, and I, it's back to that, don't choose between over, over positivity or this is a death sentence, is if you get a good assessment, which is not always the case, but really digging into the struggles and the potential, not gifts of the condition, but positive traits of the individual and possibly the, the, the gifts that can come out are the ability to, to work harder, for example, or to know what kind of support you need uh, but so is to, to be real in that way and I would say number two is to is to stop thinking about fixing your kid and get curious and that curiosity includes getting curious about your own executive functions because you know get curious about your own learning profile because we don't always we don't only like project our triggers and our wounds, but you know we all have our own communication style and we have our own defaults on and and biases um, on our own communication style. And so instead of just thinking of your kids 
attention issues or executive function weaknesses as the things to fix is really get curious about your own and see how you might be contributing to the, to the issues. And number three is to really delve into part of the curiosity is to look at uh, the concept of hill skill and will. You know, when you're, when you're trying to do a, an analysis in a way, or you're pulling your hair out and trying to figure out why does my kid do this? Or is it a problem with motivation or is it specific to the condition of ADHD? That very much relates to hill skill and will. Where hill is talking about the things that are, that are challenges or impediments that are basic to the condition, right? That are sort of built in. One example of that is like if you're someone with dyslexia, for example, there's an inherent or built-in problem challenge with something called phonological processing. Those are the things that are that are hill. You know, if you're someone with ADHD and you find out, for example, one one common trait of folks with some forms of ADHD is poor verbal working memories. It could be super smart, but if you give them a list of things that they hear, they have just trouble holding it in their minds. That's verbal working memory. And so if, if testing shows that you're really weak in that area, or if empirical evidence or experience suggests that that's, that's Hill, there's really not a lot you can do about it. So if you keep trying to help your kid with weak verbal memory by talking at them and giving them verbal lists without writing it down, then you're the problem. Or skill. You know, there are things that are teachable. And then finally, you know, is it a problem of will, which is usually a problem of energy and motivation, right? So really looking at hill skill and will as a concept, and, and that's something we can teach our kids you know, is let's take a look at this issue that you keep bumping up against. You're constantly late or you're not following through or homework is not getting completed or you fly off the handle so quickly. Let's take a look at, is it a problem with hill skill or will? And those things take it out of the realm of it's a character flaw to, it, it kind of leads to an increased accountability. Mm-hmm. So those are, those are sort of the top three. There's, there's others, which are things like learn how to externalize the mapping system, they call it, which is really about making things vi- visible, Dishes, decision trees and lists and flow charts and photos and sticky notes, you know, make things visible. If you want to, you know, if a, pr- a primary deficit of people with ADHD, kids or adults, is um, is time management, you know, and getting stuff done. And it's often based in poor working memory of the ability to picture things or to remember things verbally. So we learn to do things that circumvent or don't put the stress on those memory systems, which includes making things visible, making things kinesthetic, physical activity, you know, extremely important. And, you know, as, as parents or professionals, when we're trying to change the behaviors for the positive is, you know, 
learning about things like the limitations of natural and logical consequences of things like how to refuel the system, you know, and one of the things that, that we learn um, from po folks like Russell Barkley is we can help kids and adults to, to be more persistent in their, in their activity that they're trying to do to get something done by verbalizing and visualizing future benefits and rewards during the tasks that put a lot of stress on, on uh, the executive functions. So what I just said is a whole lot of words. So let's just quickly break that down. What does that really mean to verbalize and visualize future benefits and rewards before and during activities that are really demanding upon executive functions? It kind of means that we're coaching, like if you were coaching someone doing an activity that was putting stress on their executive functions, then before and during the activity, as a coach, you're, you're talking out loud and helping them visualize, hey, keep going. If you do this, remember what the reward is. You know, you're going to this or that. You're going to, just like an athletic coach would do before a strenuous workout or during a, a strenuous workout. It's you can break it down into that sort of common sense kind of approach. Yeah. Uh, I, I like that. You know, I think that there's a lot of great research going into behavior design right now. And it, I'm, uh -huh. I'm reading some books on willpower, motivation, habit forming. One that I'm really enjoying is tiny habits uh, by BJ Fogg. Uh, I've heard of Stanford. that. And, you know, it, I see some correlations here with what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. and that is, is that there are, tips and tactics not shortcuts um but to getting ourselves <laughs> getting ourselves to do a task we may not like by right. by picturing like hey i don't like picking up my room but i love walking into a clean room right, right? you know those kinds of those kinds of things and i think that we're going to see some really cool stuff come out in the next 10 years on that very thing because we all know that goal setting in a very simplified format doesn't work for most people in my experience. And I think that's why people hate to set goals or, you know, that's why the gym is packed on January 1st right. um, every year for about a week and then it's back to normal. So um, it, it seems to me that shame, there's a strong correlation of shame with ADHD and yeah talk to me what can we do to avoid that what can parents teachers coaches do to avoid that um and avoid that trap because it yeah. can be frustrating right to say a, a young person's name 20 times and they're they're just you know chasing a butterfly and you're like how are you not hearing my name <laughs> or you know or or you know whatever it may be right um it can be frustrating to be around this deficit and um, if you're not self-aware, right? And I think that, so what are your tips or what's your advice to families or parents or teachers or whoever it may be? I think the most important thing is to, you know, to use a phrase from the treatment world, which is to do your own work. Focus on the things you can control and influence which tend to be just about yourself and not the other person. 
you know, if you're focused on changing the behavior of the other person without looking at your own part in possibly contributing to the escalating behavior, then you're lost. If you're, if you're calling the kid's name 20 times, expecting different results, you have to take a look at why that is right. with compassion. But why is, you know, is anybody's response to the offending behavior so rigid? What buttons is the pushing in us that causes us to even overreact and shame? You know, how are we contributing to the shame? These are really the, some of the most important parts of helping somebody move out of shame. Let's go back a second. You know, some of the primary deficits of attention deficit disorder is time management. And so these are people who more often than not, you know, are missing appointments, are coming in late, are not, are misplacing things. And they're constantly getting feedback from the environment that they're less than and they're not good at. So you're right, there's a tremendous amount of shame. And in order to be a more effective parent, meaning meaning that you're actually influencing your children, is to, again, take it out of the fix-it mold and maybe think about it in a different frame of reference. Like imagine, imagine a, a husband and wife, for example, and let's Let's say that it's the guy who's got attention deficit. So he's, you know, late for this and late for that. And maybe he comes in late for, you know, an anniversary dinner, like hours late. Right? How does that affect, you know, what is that, how is that interpreted? You know, the, there's, there's a transference there, you know, by, by the partner there of, I'm not important right? Or you are out with somebody else. So the focus then becomes not on the underlying condition of time management, but on how it feels to the receiver and how it's interpreted. And then the response is anger and belittling, right? In that scenario, right? I'm not saying all people do this, but in that scenario, more often than not, there's escalation that's based on those feelings and the responses. And then what does that do? That creates conditioned responses in the offending person who's three hours late. They get angry, you know, in the face of that shaming. That's when lies start to happen. And it sets up like it perpetuates, whether it's between a husband and wife or two partners in another intimate relationship, or parent and child, it perpetuates this role, rigid role of an over-functioning, hyper-competent adult and an under-functioning child. And it's the source of cover-ups and lies and avoidance and anger and a loss of respect. And we wonder why, if we're doing some degree of that as the over-functioning adult, we wonder why our our kid or our partner continues to act like a child. Does that make sense? Totally, totally. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm laughing to myself as we're talking about this. And my poor wife gets thrown under the bus on this podcast all the time. But uh, 
I went to the store on Sunday. She gave me a list. I took it in my head mentally. Mm-hmm. And I was like, do not forget anything. And, right. and like, cause I always forget something and, sure. you know, and I'm not ADHD. I don't, I don't have this diagnosis or disorder And And so I, again, I loved how you started this with like, we all struggle in these areas. Right. Um, <laughs> I got, I got back. We're going through the groceries. She, she's like, bam, bam, like you nailed it. You know, I mean, not, not like she was like testing me. She picks up the milk and I had pulled milk off the shelf without looking at the expiration date and it right. like expired in like three or four days. And she's like, really dude, like you didn't look at the expiration on the milk and I lost it. I was just like, really? That's the thing that like, right. like I got cheese, I got lettuce. I didn't, you know, that, you know, like, um, and I, I can imagine that someone with, ADHD constantly feels that scrutiny from family, loved ones, coaches, teachers. And it, yeah, it, you know, it can be very frustrating and probably beat up on self-esteem after a while. So that's, you know, um, (laughs) that's that's why I was laughing when you were like, I was like, okay, I get how someone might feel because I was, I was upset about the milk way more than she was. She was like, Oh, it's just pointing it out. And I'm like, you know, (laughs) So, it's, so, it's such a great story though because it's and believe me of course i've i've been married coming up on 30 years now and and you know it's it's people have their own styles of learning uh, or their own learning profiles which includes all the things we've been talking about which which impacts how we solve problems you know and and my wife and i solve problems very differently but what these stories really help us focus on is that in many instances, the things that people like me, you know, can come up with or have learned as best practices to help people with, let's say, learning deficits or learning differences or executive function and attentional weaknesses, the things that we've come up with that are best practices to help them turns out they can be golden nuggets to help anybody be more competent in a relationship, competent in a job, uh, you know, or effective in life. And, you know, one of those things is engaging the individual in their own problem solving. Like whatever else we do, we've learned that, you know, if I am working with a young woman with attention problems, who's often late and missing assignments or, you know, you know, struggling with anxiety that, that is a result of that shame of always being behind the eight ball. If we can engage, if I can engage her in, if I can teach her some of the science and some of the neurology and some of the psychology, but allow her to come up with some of her own solutions, that's, like we know that that helps motivation. Well, that's not just true for people with ADD, it's true for all of us, right? Like there's a, there's a story I heard of, um, of, of a woman in a, in a relationship with a guy, they're living together, whether they're married or not, not really important, but um, she, she, the woman had significant ADHD struggles and one of the ways it showed itself 
to the chagrin of her husband or her partner was that the kitchen was often a mess. Um, and when he would come home from work and that created some relationship problems. And as they problem solved and, you know, with some coaching and some therapy, she came up with, um, with a solution that was something like she set her timer on her phone, I think it was, for a certain amount of time. Let's say it was like 10 minutes. She set her timer. And then because she was a super competitive woman who was an accomplished middle distance runner, she was super accomplished and super competitive. And she set her timer for 10 minutes. And then she raced against that clock in order to get the kitchen clean. Now, that would be a horrible solution for me. Mm -hmm. That would lead to disaster. But for her, she came up with the idea and it fit her own style of super competitiveness. And it worked. Because we often, if we think about it, we often come up with solutions for somebody else who we think of as the problem. We come up with solutions that are based on our own learning profile rather than theirs. I like that. I'm actually going to try that because I hate cleaning up. And with uh -huh. twin toddlers, our house, uh, you clean up and our house is a wreck in 10 minutes. And, but I love walking into a clean home and I love walking into a clean room. It gives me peace of mind and I'm not admittedly not the cleanest person. So I'm going to try that. And I, I, I get what you're saying. Right. And it's like, let's not be too prescriptive in our support. Um, okay. Let's, let's sit side by side in the dirt as another metaphor as opposed to stand up and point down and say try this right and mm -hmm. so we could talk all day and i'm mindful of your time and just the length of this podcast because i really want people to make sure they don't uh they they don't not listen because it's too long now mm -hmm. i know you've written books forgive me i'm gonna miss this you've written child books on dyslexia and learning disabilities is there two out? Yeah, I just published one like this weekend. I was so excited um, because it's been a real labor of love. Thanks for asking. It's been a real labor of love. And, and when you self-publish through Amazon, um, and my illustrator is a former student of mine who's very dyslexic and super talented as an artist, um, but there's so many little details with layout and stuff. So, so the editing process took seemingly forever. And so I was so happy to finally, um, you know, get it out there. And it's, a, it's an adventure tale for kids um, where all the characters in the, in the story are animals that have strengths and weaknesses and struggles and shame. And, you know, some of them are ADD-like and some of them are dyslexic, but they, they go through this adventure where they overcome the, the sort of self-limitation and shame based on their struggles and they discover their core gifts as a way to help them through the challenges of the adventure, impending floods and whatnot. And so, um, so I'm really excited and, uh, and, uh, and I hope lots of people take a look at it. It's called A Light Within My Dyslexia. And it's really an adventure story to help kids develop resilience and grit. Um, so really whether or not you have a learning difference or, a, or an attentional struggle, it's got application to just growing up. That's really cool. I love that you're doing that. And I, 
I, I was going to say, is there an ADHD version or creative idea in there? It sounds like you already put it into this latest book, yeah. but uh, I, have I, you got I, more ideas? Are we going to see more of these books down the road? Well, unfortunately for me, I think I do have, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, yeah, I do have a third one in mind, which is really targeting uh, teenagers and adolescents, and it really will have, you know, very little to do with learning differences and more about, more about life challenges, um, the things that you and I have been involved with professionally for a long time. Um, but I don't want to say too much about it, you right. know, at this point, but it'll be, it'll be more in depth. Um, and some, sometime I may take the plunge of, of, of writing a, a book that, that gets at, you know, I've been doing what I'm doing, working with different learning profiles for 40 years. So I've made enough mistakes and done a lot of good for a long period of time. And um, but I also have a personal story that's involved in uh, including an, an older stepson who struggled in, with a lot of these things. And, and um, I think I would like to culminate with a book that puts those two things together, sort of professional lear learning and whatever wisdom I've accumulated, but also being really raw and honest about the places that, that I've not been able to fix. Good. Where can so people thanks. find you, Sanford? Um, they can find me. The, the books are on Amazon. And um, I also have a website, ldresources.org, ldresources.org, which is a website that's been going since the 90s. And it's really about bridging the gap between mental health and learning differences. So thanks. Great. Always a pleasure. I always enjoy our discussions. I think you're the first interviewee that I've interviewed twice. And I know we talked about that in our first interview. And I have a feeling we're, we have more uh, recorded conversations in our future, man. So uh, I appreciate your time. And thank you for joining the podcast. You're welcome. Take care, Andrew. You bet. Hey guys, thanks again for joining this episode of In the Trenches with me, your host, Andrew Taylor. If you like what you're hearing, I would love it if you would subscribe to my podcast. You can find me on iTunes and SoundCloud. It's In the Trenches with Andrew Taylor. So thanks for joining and hope to see you next time.